I was thinking so much about the early church and about when people were coming to the Lord and being saved, they would be raised up, they would be discipled, and then they would be sent out to go and to uh, do the things that the Lord had put on their heart to do. And then they would come back and then they would give uh, testimony of what it was that the Lord had been doing in and through them. Today we have opportunity to hear from Jamie and Alyssa. For those of you who do not know them, Alyssa uh, uh, came to this church when she was like in junior high or high school. Jamie was raised in Madagascar. They met in Seattle through Jamie's sister. And um, seven years ago, went to Madagascar and are just doing great work. And so we want them to come today and give us a word and show us what was happening. Because we can see it, of course, on the internet. But hearing their hearts, hearing what the Lord is doing in them and through them is powerful. And this is a report to you who have been supporting them. And so we're just so grateful that you guys are here today. And you discipled. That's right. That's right. That's right. That was good times on the porch there. Hi, you guys. It is it is good to be here. Every two years that we come back, it's always amazing to see familiar faces who we have known. You guys were at our wedding right here. You know, you have seen our babies grow up, um, and you guys have sent us off to Madagascar. And so it's good to be here, as well as see so many new faces. There's a lot of them, too. So let's begin our time by praying together, you all. Heavenly Jesus, we thank you for your deep love. We thank you that your love expands from Santa Barbara to Madagascar and everywhere in between. That there is no place that your love does not reach. We thank you for your hand today and yesterday and tomorrow. We trust you, Lord. We give you this time that we are sharing about the work that you are doing in Madagascar. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as Colleen mentioned, uh, you guys sent us out seven years ago. And when we went seven years ago, it was, it was a dream. And um, in terms of it wasn't dream me, but it was, it was a dream that God had put on our hearts. <laughs> Um, and, and it's amazing once we come, when we come back to the States is really when we kind of take a step back and we, we see what all that God is doing, um, as we put presentations together and, and whatnot. And so we want to show you what God is doing. It is truly, it is his hand at work. It is not our, our own in any stretch of the, of the means. And so you'll see that here in this first video. As we had said in the video, uh, we seek to restore health and force and the hope in Christ in Madagascar. Um, we opened the Sarabidi Maternity Center. Sarabidi means precious in Malagasy. We opened that four years ago and began deliveries in August of last year. But really, the whole reason and basis of why we wanted to open this is we wanted women to know that they were precious, that they were precious in the Lord's eyes. And, and we want to provide a safe, welcoming place that they could bring their babies into the world because that is non-existent in Madagascar. Women are abused um, during childbirth, and and there's no, no uh, postpartum care is non-existent, 100%. And so we do something completely different, and we we open our doors to any woman. They can be um, educated, they can be completely illiterate, they might be a prostitute, either former or current. We have a lot of we have a lot of those ladies. Um, they may be following ancestral traditional ancestral beliefs. They may be following Islam. They may be Christian. Um, they may be single moms. They may be married. Some are even have had their seventh babies with us. So really the doors are open to all. But I want to share um, a story of one woman. This is Marie Piertin, and she gave us permission to share her story. 
She is uh, one of our more educated women. She came to the center uh, with her pregnant with her second baby, and she, as soon as the minute she found out she was pregnant, somehow she heard about the center, and she came and she she applied to come into the program. And she just said, "I know that the Lord wants me here." And so she rearranged her schedule. She's one of our few ladies that has a job, and she rearranged her schedule so she could walk to our center every day, every Monday, for an hour walk and then an hour or plus walk home. And she continued to come every week, and she had a beautiful first half of her pregnancy, no problems. And then about halfway through her pregnancy, this little thing, I mean, she is little, bubbly personality, her belly started just getting really big and bigger and bigger. And she has some, had something called polyhydromatous, which has meant that she had too much amniotic fluid. And that could be because maybe there's a problem with the baby. Maybe she had diabetes, but there wasn't any of that going on. And so we followed her really closely. And every week we prayed with her and we pray, we just prayed that the Lord would have his hand on her life and on her baby's life. And, um, and so as the as the weeks progressed and she got closer and closer to delivery, we went through scenarios with all of our midwives and we said, okay, so when her water breaks, we could maybe expect to see a cord. That's going to be an emergency. We were preparing ourselves. What we didn't do though was prepare ourselves for what happened. So she came into um, the center about 7 p.m. And she was having good, strong contractions, and she labored through the night. And about 5 a.m., as, as it got closer to bringing her baby into the world, she, the baby's head was born, but the, baby, the rest of the baby wasn't. So the baby's shoulder was stuck under, underneath the pelvic bones, which is a, a medical emergency because we need to get this baby out. And, and what felt like forever, and eventually that baby was born, and the little girl was blue, and she was floppy, and she was lifeless. And so our team of midwives, one team, started doing a full resuscitation on this baby. And we said to Marie Pierchin, we said, Marie, talk to your baby. And she was rubbing her cheek, and she was like, hey, Zaza, wo, Zaza, wo, Zaza, wo, baby. And she was talking to her. And then, so while one team of midwives is resuscitating the baby, I look over, and Marie is starting to hemorrhage. So now we have another, third, that's our third emergency on our hands. So she's starting to hemorrhage and we, our second team of midwives does everything that we need to do to stop that bleeding. Now, postpartum hemorrhage is the, is the number one cause of maternal mortality worldwide. And it shouldn't be. Women should not be dying from bleeding, but they are. And, and so the Lord was so good and he, he, his hand of protection was in that birth room and that baby made it and Marie made it and that bleeding stopped. And then, so we waited. We still were waiting for that placenta to come. And it didn't come. And it didn't come. And she had all of these drugs on board that we had given her that you would expect would help that placenta to come, and it didn't. And so finally, uh, two of our midwives and our Canadian physician all individually attempted to remove that placenta. And finally, the Canadian physician attempted one last time, and the cord snapped. The umbilical cord snapped. Now, our Canadian physician, who's been practicing for 15 years, she said that has, I've never, that has never happened before. She saw it once when she was a resident, but she's never experienced it firsthand. And so now we have another crisis on our hands, and we, we pile Marie and her baby, who are both now stable, and we put them in the ambulance, and we rush off to the, to the hospital across town. 
and we get her into the operating room. We don't, the, the hospital staff gets her into the operating room and we discover why that placenta wasn't coming. It's called placenta creta, where the placenta is actually embedded into the uterine wall. So it's not gonna come. Another way that women die during childbirth. It's very rare and it's even more rare that cords snap. But nonetheless, it's a, another cause of, of um, maternal mortality. That's just one. That, w- that was a scary birth. It was a scary birth for all of us. And, you know, we talked to Marie afterwards, and we said, so, how are you doing? How's your heart? What did you think about that? She said, oh, God was so good. I knew that God, God was with us, and I wasn't afraid. And we said, we were very, very afraid. Because the, tr- the truth of, of the matter is, is, historically, and we have seen this time and time again, if Marie had delivered in, in a government clinic, if she had delivered in the hospital, if she had delivered at home with a midwife, that baby, no doubt, would have died. Because they wouldn't have even attempted resuscitation on the baby. They would have said, nope, baby's dead. And had she delivered in a clinic, and they didn't have all that they needed to do, the mom would have died as well. And so she would have left a 23-year-old husband as a widow and a four-year-old son without a mom. And it happens all the time in Madagascar. Um, So one of the things that God is just really laying upon our hearts as a team of midwives, as we're seeing this and we're seeing um, the needs and, and all of the World Health Organization and the United Nations, they all say to reduce maternal mortality, we have to train more midwives. That is the number one solution is to train more midwives. Well, Madagascar is training midwives. Their education is just really, really poor. And so uh, one, one new graduate midwife came in to interview with us, and she was doing um, an essay. It's uh, like an internship for a couple weeks with us. And she, I went into a patient room with her, and I said, okay, I want you to palpate the woman's belly, and I want you to tell me what you find no position of the baby. And she didn't know how to palpate the mother's belly. And she didn't know why. Why do midwives even do this? She was a graduate midwife, three years of schooling. And she didn't understand or know how to do it and the reasons why to do it. Or maybe they don't know how to do a proper pulse, doing it here and not here. Again, these are super basic concepts that some of these ladies are missing. And so the Lord has just really put it upon all of our hearts to, to start... Um, a postgraduate midwifery training program. So where women have graduated from midwifery school and we can bring them into the center and we can have all these different modalities of education um, where we bring their skills up, their skills and their knowledge. So whether they end up working for the maternity center or if we have a second maternity center or whether they're working in a government clinic or they are working out in the countryside, one, they have the skills and the tools. But the third thing is, is that they see that women should be treated respectfully and kindly in childbirth and not yelled at and not beat because that happens. Verbal abuse and physical abuse happen. Um, and then, of course, we are able to, to share the love of Christ with these midwives. It's amazing to, uh, to be in that maternity center and see how much life is being restored, hope is being come back into these women's lives as they're being cared for and loved. And another aspect of life that we often forget that's so connected to each one of us, and that is forests and trees. 
I believe everybody here loves to eat fruits and vegetables. And we are so connected to our forests. And God created the garden and put Adam and Eve into it for a reason. But when you wipe out the trees, life changes drastically. And in Madagascar, about 90% of the forests have been wiped out. And so the impact of that and the, impover- the poverty that, that, that uh, causes in the people's lives is extreme. And so we, through Eden Projects, we are partnering with the Malagasy and we're planting trees and uh, hiring the Malagasy's to do that. And in 2007, we planted our first tree that led to 100,000 trees being planted in that year. This year, we should plant, we should break 200 million trees planted into the ground. And it's through partnering with the Malagasy. But Malagasy's in those areas, the poorest of the poor who don't have income are hired to reforest their land and to protect. And they fall in love with the environment. And they see the impact that that's happening as they're able to, to col- uh, collect crab and shrimp and fish out of the forest that they're restoring in the mangrove swamps. And, and, and so the impact is having a, not only an ecological impact, but also impact on people's lives. And um, it's having individual impact. Like these women and the community as they unite together. And there are certain things that we anticipated, such as all of a sudden the kids, they're able to afford to put their kids into school. They're able to buy food to feed their families a more nutritious diet. They're able to fix their houses. Well, we didn't realize the level that it would be individual and then family and then community impact. And certain things like divorce rate has dropped drastically in the areas where work because families are receiving a steady income. So that stress is, is alleviating. And they're united to reforest and protect. And they're coming together as families. So we're seeing the divorce rate drop. We're seeing communities join together in pride. Well, one woman said, we can sleep and actually rest because we don't have to think about how we're going to feed our kids tomorrow because we know. We have a resource, and it is provi- the providing of income is having multiple impacts in their lives. They're buying land. They're buying fishing gear. They're buying shrimp uh, canoes. They're buying uh, ox carts, cattle, and life is improving on multiple levels. This is Kalamburu. When we went and we first started working in Kalamburu, they did not want us there. It was, you guys are Christian, no. This was going to visit la- uh, last year when we went to visit. This was their welcome. And they've written songs in their folk songs about the reforestation work, about us coming. And they sang them as a welcome to us into their village. And seeing the communities have pride. This is our village. And they want to, they're competing with the other villages to have the better village to show to the world as they come and see. It's so beautiful to watch. And, and it's uniting the communities, which we didn't anticipate. And so it's, it's such a privilege to work with these women and really... Bring hope to them in a medical need where the, and hope in their deliveries and, and knowing that people are truly caring for them and, and addressing the need there. It's a privilege to be able to partner with the Malagasy in reforesting and addressing that need while alleviating poverty and helping restore the environment. But the ultimate goal is to also to be able to share the love of Christ through it all. It creates a platform that we can reach and walk with people through life And share the love that is found only in Christ. 17 years ago, I sat in a hut with Dr. Raza, the most powerful witch doctor in the area of Mahabana. It took a year and a half for the trust to be enough for him to welcome me into his house. 
And he allowed me to do an, uh, this interview, which was questioning and, and learning about what the traditional belief structures are with the Malagasy in that region. And in the questionnaire, there's a question I asked, which was, what is God doing? What has the creator God been doing in the last 50 years in, your, in this area? And his wife was sitting in the corner. She's a fundi. And in their spiritual worship, she is the woman who would evoke the spirits from the ancestors out of a person. It's a little more complicated than that. But she stood up and said, God is trying to bring us into the light. And we are choosing to live in darkness. I was not expecting that answer. I was shocked. And yet, now 17 years later, God has been penetrating into these villages, into people's lives, and the light is shining. And they are, some are choosing not to live in darkness. As women come to the maternity center, we, like I said, there's, there's Muslims, there are traditional animists, there's Christians, there's people who are just, I'm not going to church whatsoever. And yet they're coming to the maternity center and they are experiencing the love of Christ through the staff. And uh, we are sitting every week, we have a Bible study with them and we do worship with them. And during their appointments, we pray with them individually. And, and during labor and delivery, we pray with them. And when we go to their homes for their postpartum visits, we pray with them. And when their babies are six months old and they graduate from our maternity center, they get a diploma and they get a six month stock of vitamins. And they also have, we wash their feet. You got it. You got it. Oh, click the light. <laughs> and we and we wash their feet. And during that time, we have this amazing opportunity to once more share the gospel of Christ. And they say, "Why are you guys doing this? You know, their feet are dirty. They live in the dirt. There's no cement, so they live in the dirt and they walk around barefoot or with just very thin flip flops. And and they say, "Why would you do this? Our feet are disgusting. They're dirty." And and we say, "Well, but that's what Jesus did." And this is the love of Christ for you. And, and so we're able to present them with the gospel, and then we give them a pedicure afterwards. And they love that as well. Um, but our ultimate prayer for these ladies that are coming through our doors is that they would truly experience the love of Christ. And that as they receive that themselves and, and, and proclaim Christ as their Savior, that they would pass it on to the other, to next generations. And with the Eden Projects, we are... The f there's 500 employees now that are receiving steady income, and every one of them has heard the gospel. And each one of them has heard it. Some have received it. Some have accepted. Some are still on the journey, but they're all drawn to the Creator as they're caring for creation and as they're feeling God's love as they are being cared for. In, the, in this world, it opens up the door to share the gospel with them over and over again. And it was real exciting. This last time, we were able to have a leadership training where we literally brought the leaders from Mahabana, Kalamburu, and Majanga in the mangrove projects and did some in-depth leadership training. And while we were doing that, if you look in this picture, there's Muslims, there's ancestral worshipers, there's non-believers, and then there's a whole bunch of really strong believers, strong Christians. And these are the key leaders who are teaching leadership skills from a Christian perspective and sharing Christ's love through leading them and how to lead in a loving way. And it's amazing to see this group of the poorest of the poor right here who are now stepping up as key leaders and bringing change to their nation, change in, in individuals, communities, and now into their nations. And it's such a privilege to be a part of that. 
Look at the joy on these ladies' faces. These are the Sutter Beauty Creation Artists. Um, six of the seven of them have had their babies through the maternity center, so nine babies total, because three just had their second babies at the maternity center um, this past summer. We've had the privilege to walk with these women for the last four years. They were some of the very first ones in our program, and, and to be with them on a regular basis. And I have truly, truly seen how these ladies were originally downcast without hope, and now they have, they have Jesus in them, and they are doing Bible studies that we are not doing. This is when they meet together to do the artisan projects, they are, they are worshiping together. They are doing Bibles together, together. They are praying together. And, um, and it, is, it is an incredible joy to watch and then to see how these, uh, these new children, these new generations are being raised up in the love of the Lord as well. This is the church in Mabana. Many of you might remember, when we first went to Mabana, it was taboo Jesus and the Bible. Nobody even wanted to say the name Jesus. It was the fear when that name was proclaimed. The church is growing, and now the name of Jesus is proclaimed in the church as people are working, they're singing praise songs, and the darkness in that village. We used to walk in, and it was like a shadow of darkness over you the whole time. Now it's full of life. You feel peace. You feel hope. And uh, when we started Eden Projects there and employing people, there, most of our employees were entrapped into indentured servanthood. There, uh, there were several key, uh, men in the village or women that were, they, we called them fish lords, and they would, hire, they would hire people and entrap them in debt bondage. But as people paid off all their debts, all of a sudden these, these rich Malagasy's lost their free labor that they could dominate. And they didn't like that the poor were moving up. The poor were, were moving out of the crippling grasps of poverty. And so they started battling against us. And for the last 10 years, there's been four men who have battled. Who we've had arrests because of, we've been arrested because of them, some of the staff. There's been accusations of stealing land. There's been letters written to the staff, to, to us, the, about how bad it is. And yet, one by one, they have just given up. And this last year... The strongest man that was battling against it, he literally came and asked for forgiveness. And the, pres- the villages, the complete transformation of the village. And, and you see that the, the previous village, the village the, of Kalambudu, where we walk in. When we first went, the king said, no. No Eden projects here because the gospel always comes with it. But then his daughter was going to get a job. Okay, you can come now. So we came in, and she was hired, and a Bible study started. And they, people used to come around, and they'd get all drunk and make a whole bunch of noise to distract the Bible study. That happened for about two years, but they kept going. And eventually we heard that they needed water, and the, the, the wells were dirty, so we built three wells for them with sanitary fresh water. And the king said, this is the first time someone from the outside has truly seen us and cared for us. Here's land. And he gave us land to build a school on, to, to build. And, and there's a, services are starting to happen. And the village is being transformed. Once it was closed off, now it's welcoming. And we're able to share the gospel there. Now we're starting to work on Tanamarna, another village up north of Majanga. And they do not want Jesus yet. They do, but they don't know it yet. They are... And, and we are working with them and walking with them. And the king will say, you can... You can uh, you can believe what you believe, but I want my ancestors. And as we're walking through life with them, as we're sharing this journey, we're able to share the hope. And slowly, 
the light comes in and the darkness disappears. And the light penetrates into people's lives. Before we left Madagascar, I read through John chapter 6. I'm sure all of you know this story. And I've read it many times, but when I read it this la- that, that time, it struck me a little differently. I'm going to paraphrase it. When, we, when, when Jesus was standing with his disciples up on the hill, he turned to Philip and said, how are we going to feed these 5,000 people? Jesus already knew what he was going to do, but he was asking Philip, testing him. And, and Philip's like, like we all would do. That's impossible. If we could work for six months and there's no way each person could even have a bite from the income we'd make from that. But then uh, Simon Peter's brother came up. I forget who it was. But, and then a boy had a few loaves of fish, a few loaves of bread and a few fish. He said, here, Jesus. And what did Jesus do? He took those, that bread and fish and fed 5,000 people. And there was leftovers afterwards. And everybody knew and saw that Jesus was the truth. I read through that, and it was like when I read Jesus asking Philip, how are we going to feed the 5,000? It was like he was saying, Jamie, how are we going to reforest Madagascar? It's like you're saying, Jamie, how are we going to address poverty in Madagascar? How are we going to help these women during their time of pregnancy and delivery? And it was a reminder to me that we, we started with one tree. It seems impossible, and it is impossible, that now we're going towards 200 million. We started with a few women at the center, and it's grown far beyond what we ever imagined. And God doesn't need us, but he invited us. And he invited us to step out in faith. And then there's this story of, and then the boy comes into the picture with a few fish and a few loaves of bread. That's you. I don't think anybody thought that the gifts of time, of prayer, financially, would grow to this. That is Jesus taking it and multiplying it. In a way that people are seeing that Jesus is the truth. And he's using us. And we get to be a part of it. So we thank you. Thank you for joining it. For for freely giving. And allowing God to take your resources, your time, your prayers. and And grow exponentially. We couldn't do this without you. Thank you. I also ask... So I ask you guys, this is way over in Madagascar, but God is the same everywhere. What is Jesus asking you to join? What is he inviting you to be a part of that may seem impossible? And our natural response is, we can't do that. You can't, (laughs) but Jesus can. And Jesus already knows what he wants to do. And he knows how he's going to move forward. We have to be willing to listen, to step out in faith and take and trust that those two fish, those few loaves of bread will be enough to feed the 5,000. So our challenge to you is are we listening to God's voice? Are we letting Jesus speak into our lives and invite us to do the impossible? Because it is impossible without him. 
but I know he's speaking to each and every one of us here. So we encourage you, listen to God's voice and step out in faith. You have no idea what God will do because it will be the impossible. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the life that you've given us, that you walk with us through life every step of the way, and that you have plans to do the impossible, and you don't need us, but you want us, and you invite us to be a part of that. You invite us to step into faith and do things that will proclaim your name, that will bring people to see you and show your glory. We ask for your forgiveness when we forget to trust that you can do the impossible. And we look at you through our worldly eyes of this is the only thing that can be done. And yet, you are the God above all things. So, Father, as we go, as we go out into the world, we want to hear your voice. And we want to step out in faith. And we want to feed the 5,000 around us. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.